Welcome to Women in Venture Capital. I'm Roshvina, a student at Harvard Business School with prior experience in finance and more recently venture capital in Africa. And I'm Anvita, Harvard Business School class of 22. I've actively worked in VC and tech startup space. Our mission at Women in Venture Capital is simple: increase the representation of women in the VC industry through awareness and engagement. So join us as we engage with women establishing their presence in VC. We have a very special guest today, uh, Professor Victoria Ivashina, um, who happened to be my professor here at Howard Business School, teaching me last finance semester. in my last semester. Um, she is one of the super cool academicians who I got a chance to spend considerable amount of time with. Um, not just great at uh, what she teaches, but also a, a superb human being. I'm personally extremely excited and uh, fortunate to have her on the show today. Um, she is the Lovett Learned Chair Professor of Finance and the Head of Finance Unit at the Harvard Business School. Professor Ivashina is also the Faculty Chair of Global Initiative for the MENA region. She's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a research fellow at the Center of Economic Policy Research, and a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and the European Central Bank. Professor Victoria serves as an associate editor of the Journal of Financial Economics and the Journal of Financial Intermediation. Her research spans multiple areas of financial intermediation including corporate credit markets, leveraged loan market, global banking operations, asset allocation by pension funds and insurance companies and value creation by private equity. Her research has also been published in top journals in finance and economics and is regularly cited in media outlets. She's the author of Patient Capital: The Challenges and Promises of Long-Term Investing in Private Equity, a case book. She holds her PhD in finance from the NYU Stern School of Business and a BA in economics from the University Catholic of Peru. We are extremely extremely delighted to have you professor. Your background is extremely unique and as most of our listeners would already know by now, it's an absolute honor to have you with the rich rich experience and background that you have. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me, Anita. Super. So jumping right in and going back to the early days, very curious to hear on what initially sparked your interest in finance and economics, and what led you to narrowing down this interest to monetary policies, among other categories. I'm not sure I'll be able to rationalize it perfectly <laughs> everything, but let me put it simple. I'm pretty good at math. but i also fascinated by human beings and i think that economics perfectly sits in the intersect of those two and uh finance is just a fascinating uh, segment of the economy that uh, that always attracted me as to monetary policy i mean first and foremost i was always interested in financial intermediation broadly speaking i mean you took my private equity class but i'm also interested in banking sector uh, i'm interested in uh private equity broadly in pension funds so it's what goes into private equity and what comes out of private equity monetary policy is actually very closely attached to financial intermediation specifically banking and uh, there are multiple channels through which monetary policy touches on banks and gets amplified through banks and so that's kind of was the natural progression of my interests that's super cool and really honest of you to share that um building on this a little bit more on the kind of research that you do and are interested in 
Uh, you've written a piece on over leveraging of companies and the market in general, notably in one of your articles, which uh, is headed as when a pandemic collides with a leveraged global economy, the perilous side of Main Street, and how just as in 2008, this practice has proven detrimental yet again with COVID corresponding recession. What do you feel is the best way with being over levered in your opinion? And what advice would you impart to companies facing this issue? I'm not sure if there is the best way to be over-levered. <laughs> I think over-levered already means that you're carrying much leverage. But look, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing. As you know, in our class, uh, uh, and we had even one guest telling you, you all are going to make this mistake. The truth is that most of the companies get pushed in the over-levered state by competition. They often, it's very hard to stand out to market forces, right? If other companies, and I'm talking about manufacturing companies here, for example, are paying special dividends by issuing cheap debt and distributing it, then the market kind of skips the details of the long-term consequences of these financial decisions. And you look bad if you kind of don't follow the herd, right? And the CEO's job might be, they, they might be receiving many questions as to why they're not doing that. So you see, there are all these market forces that pushing push even the most informed and savvy people uh, to, to, to take on leverage. Now, uh, they, there is a separate question to that. So at the firm, at this micro level, the forces are very strong. As, and every time the credit cycle gets expanded, companies get pushed into this lever state. Now, we are in a somewhat unprecedented leverage conditions because Every, every cycle we come out, there are innovations and there is new sparks in the credit markets. And I think that a new, a new, in, uh, a new vehicles. So in the articles that you alluded to in particular, uh, we are talking about securitized structures in the, in the corporate segment. So these are lever, uh, securitized structures of CLOs that fund uh, leveraged loans. And, uh, and we were talking about the mechanisms that operate at their balance sheet. So what happened in 2008 is that leverage was primarily coming through banks and it's well known that it was a huge mess, <laughs> but leverage wasn't that high. After the 2008, we pushed it out of banks. Thanks God, because otherwise 2020 would have looked very different, but we pushed it into this other non-bank institutions and the channels through which it kind of starts biting back at the firms uh, are not very well understood. And so specifically, as I said in this article that I, you alluded to, it's on my web, uh, we speak about how the securitized structures, what types of constraints they face. And, and, and also from our class, as you know, there is always this question about what's the problem with this, this, this big lever, this large leverage? Well, I mean, there's, as an economist, for me, there is like the macro picture and the consequences to the economy. To policymakers, that's also the first order question. But let's be practical and imagine you run a company. What's the big deal? And the big deal is that you easily become strangled by the covenant structure because your lenders are short on funds or unwilling to renegotiate, or worse, that you start violating some of the promises that you made to them, either by maintaining certain financial covenants, financial ratios, or by promising certain payments that you can no longer meet. And then you just 
lose the company. That's for practical reasons. That that's that's a concern. And so that, that that's how you think about overlevered uh, being overlevered. And there are serious consequences about uh, of it. There are serious consequences for the firm. And you have to think about them because you're getting pushed there by the market, but it's coming and you need to think about how you're going to restructure. And there are serious consequences at the economic level, which people like myself and policymakers should be actively thinking about as not to prolong things getting worse and worse once they start unraveling. The better we understand, the quicker we can act on it. This is definitely a fascinating point of view that you put. And I remember from our class where we discussed that how leverage especially for founders and and the companies that are being built which are actually probably cash rich and have a very good control on the cash they have how leverage can actually help them boost their uh you know promise to their equity holders where they don't need to give out equity to raise external capital which creates more more value for themselves and hence taking taking leverage can seem seem really attractive uh the downside which like you like like you rightly said and we did a bunch of cases uh in the class as well that it can hold you in those corners which you are yourself not very sure about like breaking those covenants which may seem at the time of signing not as big a deal but as you run the business the smaller aspects of how you've promised certain ebitda margins or how you promised certain leverage ratios you can end up missing on those and hence the the downside of missing those leverages could be huge um so much so that you can even be in a position to lose your company at times which is extremely unfortunate so there's obviously this fascinating trade off on how much leverage is good enough and how should companies weigh it especially in different uh times of the external uh scenario as well so thank you for your take i think that's super fascinating also um on the same lens but a a macro view building up on different vehicles of investment um keen to hear your thoughts on if you've seen this entire investing world evolve from the lens of diversifying asset classes um seeing increasing risk return appetite at times and maybe newer niches uh, that have come up come out for investments could be newer vehicles such as crypto market maybe um curious to hear how you've seen that evolve and do you expect further innovations in business models of private equity or public market investors given the changes in um scenarios for them um almost considering these other vehicles of investments as competition um for these markets how do you how do you feel that will evolve going forward there are a lot of great questions there so let me try to st start answering it and if i leave something out uh, out you just can uh, we can just follow up on this but i i, I think that the uh, from where i see we have to distinguish a that a benign appetite for risk which is what policymakers do proactively right so when rates go down the hope is that people take more risk and go out there and start investing right so we trying to reignite the economy by giving this extra push go take risk holding your money in cash is no longer attractive so go invest it right so that's intended consequence of policy making right the problem is that uh it's not a perfect tool and and when we bring interest rates to zero uh which and let it sit there for 10 years uh, then the problem becomes that people start looking for this extra return stuff that feels kind of safe but gives you extra return and of course this uh this also 
it doesn't simply function like, oh, I'll stop investing in fixed income and I'll go into equity. No, it starts pushing into stuff in fixed income that looks riskier. And there are many pockets in there that require quite a bit of sophistication to understand what kind of risk are you taking on? And many of them have grown in the past, uh, since 2008, so in the past, uh, over the past decade, decade and plus. And so, uh, so, for example, if you think about uh, things like leveraged loan markets, which ballooned, high yield, even high yield debt, which is relatively vanilla product, uh, private debt capital, uh, uh, private credit markets, all of those, they have an incredible level of sophistication of where you are on the capital structure, what are the protections do you have as a creditor, and forget about investing through the securitized vehicles, right? where you still hold something that is rated and might look like an investment grade, which is what exactly the securitized structure kind of spits out mostly, right? It's primarily investment grade that comes by pulling this equity, super risky equity from the rest of the capital structure. But understanding the risk underlying that portfolio, granted there is a rating, there are some basic rules of how that portfolio is formed, is just practically impossible to due diligence and beyond taking this this high high level of risk assessment for uh, as on its face, right? So that's that's what kind of I think that a lot of people who kind of would tell you that there are some clouds on the horizon there, and I do think that uh, there is a little bit of uh, at least in 2021 and towards the end of 2020 there was a little bit of uh, high-fiving each other and saying, gee, look, we walked into this major massive shock with so much leverage. And it was pretty much consequential after, may I caveat that with after unprecedented intervention by the government. <laughs> but, but so that was spared and the bond markets boomed and the leverage market came back and securitization came back. And so we kind of not learned the lesson but I think that by now that those clouds are kind of coming back and people are feeling like for so long we've been pushing into these places that give me a little bit more of yield, but for not very well understood risk and how badly that can get. So I think that the problem there is that uh, the reaction to it. So if you face a shock, oftentimes a reaction to that is that markets freeze and that kind of gravates everything very, very quickly. Precise, and it's very similar in that way in 2008. What happened in 2008 is that we couldn't understand the balance sheet of the banks. All of a sudden we said, gee, I don't, I don't know. And that froze a whole bunch of different markets and things start to unravel very quickly. That is kind of not understanding that there is risk, but not understanding quantity of that risk is kind of dangerous on its own. If I miss something, Amita, just tell me what, what, what else would you like me to elaborate on? No, I think uh, that's very, very well articulated. And the only, con the only point I would make maybe, and just would love to hear your thoughts on this as a follow-up is probably in 2008, when, like you said, when people didn't understand the balance sheet of banks, their immediate reaction was to freeze. I wonder if now in 2020, 2020, when we saw the pandemic hit, yes, there was a phase, probably a shorter phase where there was a freeze uh, where people started probably withdrawing their assets from the market. Um, but soon they also started looking at alternative investments or even seeing how this shock is probably temporary and trying to uh, be smart investors there. 
So the only thing I would think maybe is in the decades time, probably the risk appetite of people has gone slightly higher where they are now probably more, um, while they acknowledge that there is a shock in the industry, they are more averse to the risk saying, let's take the bet and see and figure out if there are alternative ways of invest investing also. I think you're right, but I would put it as a separate separate thing. I wouldn't call it risk appetite. I think, as a matter of fact, I think it's a the private equity as an asset class became a little bit more mainstream, more mature, and well understood. And uh, and so I think it's that that kind of fits into this comfort of bigger and bigger and bigger base of investors uh, looking to invest in alternative asset classes. And of course, there is this appeal of uh, alternative asset classes being something that is not subject to the runs and to the human nature in when we are freezing and running and whatnot. <laughs> That's the market that kind of tends to withstand that. It protects us against ourselves, in other words. And so in that, that, so the education, the maturity of the asset class, the uh, more prominent presence throughout pension portfolios, uh, I think that all of that is true. I, I wouldn't necessarily think, I think that the 2020 re rebounds in fundraising private equity is not a consequence of something that was learned in 2020. It's more just kind of 2020 was a little pause for fundraising, and then it kind of came back in 2021. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I agree with what you just mentioned. Um, shifting gears a little bit, talking about uh, your professional journey so far, um, you've been an academician um, in the private equity or finance world overall. Um, and your teaching centers on the venture capital and private equity industries and markets. Um, curious to hear what angle do you believe that you lend to this subject matter that differentiates your teaching or have you seen that evolve in, in terms of your teaching style that makes your courses so highly sought after as they are? And I can personally, even before you comment, vouch that you've been excellent and it's been just a pleasure to sit through the classes the whole semester. Um, and I personally took back some amazing set of learnings and fundamental takeaways. But I'm curious on how you've seen your personal teaching style evolve uh, through the years. I mean, thank you for the kind words on the course, first of all. Uh, I, for personal preferences, and I think in an area like private equity, I do put a lot of emphasis on the practical part of it. And look, I mean, I deeply care about the students as well, and I, I, I'd i like them to see the, as a class that will be applicable in their day-to-day -day, uh, life or job, right? Uh, understanding how investors think, you can only get that from investors directly. That said, so that's as you know, there is a big component uh, of uh, practical issues that appear in the course. More broadly, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in uh, that partnership between academics and practitioners. Uh, and, and the reality is that academics, uh, I mean, our skill and our luxury is that we get to sit, sit back and form frameworks. We can able to separate what is generalizable and what will repeat going forward from and how does it time with basic concepts at least you, you start studying when you get introduced to finance. And so I think that, that that's kind of the edge 
or others are just kind of okay, they take a pause from fin one or fin two or anything else you've seen in economics and they're gonna go and study institutional details here. I think it's a fine balance between here's institutional details, here's the other issues that are more economically grounded and you will carry them forward. So that, that I think that like my personal goal to bring to the class and where I kind of see what, why I speak and think differently from practitioners. But again, not to downplay in any way, I, I have huge respect to, to, to practice and uh, I truly enjoy interacting with them. That's actually very well put. And I can, I can actually second there because probably eight out of the 10 classes we did had guests who, have, who came from the industry on the cases that we studied. Um, and you and, and Professor Ted make a perfect pair in that way where he brings in the decades of experience from the industry and you bring in the whole academic experience. So I think like you like you rightly called out, that definitely stands out and um, I've seen it from the other side and, and appreciate it a lot. Um, on the same lens of your uh, how you developed as an individual, one of the interesting accomplishments we also saw that you are a trilingual because you completed your undergrad from Peru and then came to New York for your graduate degree. Um, so, so just just from uh, you know from your experiences, how has this multilingualism and the culturalism actually influenced your perspective on finance, if at all it has had any uh, impact? Um, I, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, leads to some self-reflection. Look at me. First of all, I'm I feel blessed that it's not it wasn't uh, it was kind of result of where I grew up and where my parents were working at the times that I ended uh, with those three languages and but more importantly three cultures, which I think is much more difficult and uh, and unique is being able to get the culture of a place and just speaking the language. Look, I, I, as I said, I feel blessed that that's in my background. Uh, in, uh, I don't, I don't know. It makes, uh, I don't know how it translates or how it pushes forward anything on my professional side, but it definitely makes me uh, affects my intellectual curiosities. I'm deeply interested in emerging markets. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm interested in emerging markets around the world, and I, I'm interested in how they're different and unique. And, uh, and it's a great icebreaker when you say that you were born in Kazakhstan, you were ethnically Russian, and you went to college in Peru. So. That's really well put and uh, really sweet of you to call it out this honestly, but it's, it's really fascinating to hear. Um, the last question that we'd love to pick your brains on, and for our listeners, I think this has been one of those offbeat episodes where uh, our guest brings experiences from the world of academics, but hardcore in the industries that we are focused on, and where we're trying to unearth, if at all, there is, you know, any gender dynamics that we need to speak about. Um, so with that lens and with your experiences, uh, what are your thoughts on the state of the finance industry with respect to these gender dynamics and equality of opportunity? Look, I mean, there is a pure numbers, right? And if, uh, and it's been so many years and uh, and that, that I mean, whether there is an issue outstanding, it's like, it's just self-evident, right? If you look at num number of partners uh, that I have diverse uh, background or uh, it's, it's just, the numbers are just not there. However, you look at it, CEOs, financial industry, uh, senior senior partners and all that. So the issues there, it is it is complex. I think that uh, interacting with a lot of senior people in the industry, the awareness is there as well. 
I can also attest that there are, I mean, not everybody by any means, but there are a lot of sincerely good people there in their senior positions who are aware of it and willing to do something. It is a very complex issue uh, uh, that, that, I mean, I think that we can need to continue. There is not enough time here for us to, to dive into more detail. It is something that I think that companies looking carefully at, is, can they do more? I mean, this becomes idiosyncratic as to what they're already doing and what can they do more? There is an interesting thing that I've heard recently that made me pause. And that's the fact that while the intentions at the very top, the hiring, a lot of decisions are taking place lower, uh, at the lower levels. And so, somehow that, that intentions and mandate and goals from the very top don't necessarily translate through this organizational structure. So this is something that is more like in more, and of course there's several other insights here on this topic, but this is something that kind of made me think whether there is something to do on that dimension more recently. But look, I mean, I'm uh, on the on the board of the American Finance Female Committee and uh, and uh, and of course being the unit head, this is something on top of my mind. And um, on the, as I said, I interact with a lot of folks in the industry at the senior level. I know this, this is something that they bring up proactively. It's, you don't even need to ask. So it's on everybody's mind and, and, and it's a, it's it's a journey we are going through. I wish I wish we could move on it faster. You know, one thing, uh, and this is a final short thought. Uh, I am uh, a little bit discouraged by how the positive things, such as an emphasis on ESG, at the same time kind of muddied up everything. And now we interchangeably talking about CO two emission reduction as well as promoting women. And so those are completely different subjects. And and I hope we can move away and talk talk about them as separate issues and measurable issues. Love it. I think that's a brilliant point and a great note to um, end the conversation on. Thanks again, Professor Victoria. This has been an absolute honor and pleasure. Um, before we end, we have just one question for all our guests uh, and hence same for you. Um, who in your, uh, so far in your life has been that one woman, woman mentor that you look up to? Um, you know, Amita, I, I, I think it's a range of women in my family. I think uh, this kind of drive gets in, in, the, in me that I'm trying to pass to my daughters. <laughs> I always ask myself, kind of, I think that it's formed early on in life. And I think that I'm grateful to women that surrounded me uh, in who I became. Thank, Thank you so much, Amita. That's beautiful. Thanks again. It's, it was great to have you. Mm -hmm.